welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our latest edition of the Arbitral Insights podcast series. Our special guest today is Darius Kambata, Senior Advocate. Hello, Darius. Hi, Adam. Good to be with you. It's great to have you, and it's a real privilege to be speaking with you. Thank you very, very much. I'm going to say a few words of introduction about Darius first, because although he is very well known to many, many people, it'll be very helpful to just recap. So Darius is based in Mumbai. He was called to the Indian Bar in 1984. He was designated a senior counsel in 2005. He has held two distinguished public law offices. He is the former Advocate General for the state of Maharashtra, of which Mumbai is the major city. And he was also the additional Solicitor General of India, in total spending five years in those two public offices. He is one of the foremost lawyers in India and internationally well-respected and well-regarded. He has been described by the Bar Association of India as a living legal legend. That was in 2019. He was a vice president of the London Court of International Arbitration, and he's a member currently of the SEAC Court. Last but definitely not least, the English Bar has been the great beneficiary of Darius because he's now a member at One Essex Court in London, one of the preeminent barristers' chambers. So Darius, again, it's wonderful to have you on this podcast, and I'm much looking forward to our discussion today. Let me ask you the first thing, which is always a question I find fascinating, and that is, what first drew you to want to be a lawyer? That's a great question, because I still don't know the answer. (laughs) Broadly, my family has been in law. One of my grandfathers was a judge, the other was a solicitor. My father joined the bar, actually, but after a few years, branched off into the corporate world. So there has been that connection with law. I must confess that there was no burning passion to become a lawyer. So I sort of drifted into law. I enjoyed mooting when I was in law college. I I really enjoyed that. And after that, and one of the moots we did was in Washington for the Philip Jessup International Moot Court Conference. I applied and managed to somehow get my way into the Harvard Law School. And I think if anything can be the the determinative period, it was that time. Because for the first time, I realized sitting in those classrooms, what practice of law actually was and how you could analyze a problem, how you could argue around it, how quite often there wasn't just one answer to every problem, how you had to go through masses of material and come out with the core of the problem and and find a solution. And I found myself enjoying that. So I said, well, great. I'm not going to go into the corporate world. Let's give it a shot. And that's pretty much how it happened. And, you know, as part of how things have progressed over the years, we've all been inspired by people. We've all had mentors, people that we've really been influenced by. So who has influenced you in the course of your journey? If it's a general journey of life, then without question, my father, because 
he was a gem of a human being he was soft spoken he was perhaps lacking in confidence but not in intelligence he was a wonderful person he's given me so much he's given me my love of music he's given me some ability to play chess he's given me all sorts of things he's given me really i hope a desire to search for and reach the truths i'm not saying it happens every time but i think that was his endeavor in his life and because of his early involvement at the bar i came into contact with a, a number of leading figures at the bar so when he joined the bar he already knew uh, fali nariman and soli sorabji from law college and they sort of were juniors at the bar together and fali uncle has been a great inspiration as has soli of course but fali uncle has been a continuous involvement in my life uh, right from the very beginning and uh, i always aspired to be the kind of lawyer that he is to my mind the most complete lawyer i've ever witnessed and i'll i'll stick my neck out and say or will ever witness there is of course the senior i joined ikbal chagla who has been a tremendous guide and mentor to me throughout the years the way he approached his principles his standards of advocacy his clarity of thought all that was an inspiration and there were others as well there was an old senior in fact my father's senior fali soli senior nikpal senior karseji baba who was a great inspiration a great fighter in court tremendous reputation and of course i would definitely say hm sirvai the great constitutional lawyer who I had privilege of working with only once in my career as a raw junior but what a fantastic experience that was i mean he never made me feel that i was a what three or four year old junior he allowed me to research a whole section of that case he credited me with that research in open court debated points with me as if i were an equal you know i felt completely overawed but there it was and i really respect that man not only for how he conducted himself but how he conducted his whole life he was the greatest law officer i think india has ever had he was advocate general of maharashtra for 17 years and he set a standard that is impossible to attain for anyone today so these have been inspirations in the profession many more but i think these are the, the big inspirations absolutely fascinating and those names those influences are all very powerful ones and i think the comments you you've mentioned especially about your father and about the lawyers that you worked with as a junior when you were a younger lawyer will really make a big impact because i think so many of us can relate to that and i certainly can on a personal level as well you know one thing i must just say i mean as you'll be aware a short time ago we did a podcast with mr nariman one comment you made just in your answer a moment ago about how he someone that you aspire to be you know by sheer dint of coincidence i used the same expression myself to him and in the podcast i must also mention darius that in his autobiography before memory fades there's a photograph in there of you and your family that's right with him and his family so it's particularly nice we are speaking about him now they were very old and dear friends of my parents actually and sort of the families got to know each other through the years very early friendship and that friendship remained for, for decades i've got photographs of bali and babsi nariman when they were in their courting days <laughs> yes i'm sure that uh, you know we can tease him with well well with certain of those photos i'm sure we can between us so you know one of the things that are one of the many areas in which you're highly respected and very well known 
is the world of arbitration. And I've mentioned the roles that you've held and that you hold at present with institutions. But I think it'd be very interesting if we could just talk a little bit about how you came to be involved in the world of arbitration. Because I know that you were involved in what was at that time the leading arbitration case in India, the ANZ Grindley's arbitration. But maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you first came to be involved in the world of arbitration. You rightly mentioned that case. That was a transforming experience. But the main litigation in Bombay has always been commercial litigation. And that sets it apart from other cities in India. But as time went on and the courts were under larger, larger burden of suits and cases being filed, there was less time to actually have trials being conducted and suits being disposed of or to decide commercial disputes. So a lot of that work started moving to arbitration. And this was well before the 1996 Act, which tried to motivate commercial disputes being resolved in arbitration. But even before that, so any Bombay lawyer who did commercial litigation inevitably found himself doing arbitration. And of course, you had people like, again, Fali Nariman and others who led in those days in their advocacy of arbitration as a dispute resolution mechanism. So I enjoy arbitration primarily because it gives the trial court experience, which we no longer get in our high courts. The very few matters in which you can actually take evidence, cross-examine a witness in court. There was something known as the special court in the 1990s, a court specially set up to decide disputes arising out of a security scam that had taken place in the early 90s. But apart from that, it was to arbitration that you turned if you wanted the full experience as a lawyer, which is cross-examination and taking of evidence. And I do believe that you cannot be a complete lawyer until you've gone through that. I'm very glad to take on a couple of arbitrations or maybe three every year, hone my skills and to make sure my skills are up to speed in that field of the law. I think it's very important to do that. Tell us about how you've seen the evolution of arbitration in India. We've obviously seen a number of reforms in India, legal reforms. We've seen a more progressive Supreme Court in India with a number of very forward-looking and supportive judgments in arbitration. And we've obviously now had the fifth year of the MCIA. So we're seeing the gradual growth of institutional arbitration in India. But just share with us some of your thoughts about how you've seen the evolution of arbitration in India. I think it's been a, a silent evolution. India is always the proverbial tortoise rather than the hare. That evolution has really crept up on us without us realizing it. And I think apart from the 1996 Act, there were judgments, uh, particularly of the Supreme Court, but of course also of the Bombay High Court and the Delhi High Court that nudged arbitration on its way and encouraged arbitration. And I think the, the, the result of all this has been that in the last five or seven years, there has been an explosion of arbitration in India. We have to some extent managed to imbibe some of the better practices from international arbitration. And we've evolved a kind of a hybrid model in India. I think there's a way to go. I, I don't think we've quite reached the level to which we aspire. But I think there is a movement. It's not without exception, of course. But there is an evolution. And I think we've been able to build on our strengths. And I credit the younger lawyers for this more than us oldies. 
because they have brought in the latest technology and I think that's the way we have to go forward. For example, five or seven years ago, it was still a very oral argument oriented system because in India, we prize the oral word far more than the written word. And to that extent, we are not as accomplished when it comes to filing sharp, concise written submissions or notes. That is changing. I've seen a lot of that change already. There's a lot of reliance on the written word now. But there are areas, of course, in which we still need to catch up. Discovery is certainly one of them. Pre-hearing work is still not up to the mark. We have to understand that everything doesn't get done in those five or ten days of hearing. There's a lot of things. Most, in fact, happens outside of the hearing. I can see all those practices already springing up, not only, I must tell you, in international commercial arbitration, but in purely domestic arbitration. And to a large extent, COVID has been a catalyst because you've had most arbitrations go on in India virtually now, whether domestic or international. And I think arbitrators and lawyers appearing in arbitration have adapted very well. I, I can see this continuing for quite some time. I, I don't see it ending. I agree. And I think also with the importance of ensuring greener arbitration, there are so many people in, in the world of arbitration who are saying, well, look, we can do things in a much more streamlined way. It's interesting that you mentioned a moment ago about how the younger generation, not us oldies, and I can certainly put myself in your esteemed company in that respect as an oldie. I, I didn't mean you, I meant myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm definitely an oldie, so, uh, and I'll happily be in your camp. I've just crossed the 60 cusp, so I, I now know what it feels like. <laughs> well, I'm not too far off that myself. I mean, one of the things that often gets debated, especially when we're in India doing conferences and speaking with practitioners, is how we can broaden the pool of people who serve as arbitrators in India. It's been a constant issue because it tends to be you know, still a relatively small pool of people who are involved as arbitrators. Have you got any thoughts about how we can really constructively and very positively change that idea about who should be sitting as arbitrators? I think actually that's a very good question and it's linked to the whole issue of institutional arbitration in India. Because traditionally, since arbitration has been ad hoc, or initiated or encouraged by a court proceeding, the appointment of arbitrators is veered towards having retired judges as arbitrators. Now, many of them, of course, come with vast experience, including of commercial law and practice, and they make very effective arbitrators. But some of them carry forward the old baggage of a trial court experience or a court's approach to procedural aspects, documentation, evidence, etc. So you obviously need many more other types of persons in the mix. And primarily, I think that would be practicing lawyers, which is the international standard. A lot of appointments of practicing lawyers comes from arbitral institutions, as you know, because arbitration in India is largely ad hoc. You don't have that huge input coming in. So... I think we need to have more practicing lawyers participate as arbitrators. I know that there are some courts in Bombay that have increasingly appointed only practicing counsel as arbitrators, indeed junior or mid-level counsel, because they feel that they can devote more time and they can dispose of an arbitration within a tight schedule. 
which they have done and they've performed. So I think it's linked up with the whole issue of institutional arbitration. Thank you. And, you know, let's look internationally. You know, you've got significant international experience and knowledge of arbitration overseas. I've mentioned that you were a vice president of the LCIA. You're on the SEAC court. What sort of practices from the international arbitration side of things have you been most impressed with over the years? I think it's hard not to be impressed with the discipline of international arbitration. A lot of people in India feel, including some judges, that arbitration is all very ad hoc, it's all very loose, it's flexible. In fact, that's the strength of it. There are no rules. It's all at the discretion of the tribunal. I think that's a wrong approach. As we know, particularly internationally, there is now a very well set of entrenched rules and disciplines to which international arbitration subjects itself. It is almost, as some commentators have put it, a body of international arbitration law. Now, I think I've been impressed by the fact that lawyers who participate in international arbitration adhere to that discipline in, in the main, not only in terms of deadlines for filings, but in terms of time limits for arguments, in terms of focused cross-examination, focused submissions and arguments. And I've been extremely impressed by the fact that tribunals engage with you far more in international arbitration than they would in Indian domestic arbitration. So you have a fully read tribunal putting the most specific questions to you, which gives you confidence, apart from your plan, that you're before a tribunal that has apprised itself of the matter and is really putting the, the core questions to you. And you don't have to go around giving them a whole lot of introduction because they already know it. That's really impressive. We know that you are a member of 186 Court. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be, because it's really wonderful to have you here with one foot in the camp, so to speak, in this country. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be, because obviously a number of senior advocates like yourself uh, are now also involved in chambers here in London. So just tell us a little bit about how that came to be. I must confess that it took a little time for me to accept, because I, primarily because I was worried that I didn't want to convert my practice into a, an international arbitration practice. I was very happy with practicing before courts in India, not only in Bombay, but also in Delhi and before the Supreme Court. And I was concerned that if I joined the chambers and work came in, that it wouldn't really be correct of me to say no. And, and to refuse work that was coming in, and that would put me in an awkward spot. They put me completely at ease. They said, that's not the intention. We want to share your experience and you'll share ours. And there's no compulsion whatsoever to accept work just because it comes to you through one Essex court. And I think that was so generous of them. They've been true to their word. It's been a, a great relationship and friendship. One of the first things I did when I got to London after the lockdown was to go and pop into chambers and, and meet them. And they're warm and welcoming. It's really been a very heartening experience. I'm really glad I did it. Well, we're certainly glad you've, you've done it and we look forward to a very long association with you in London. I must actually say the current senior clerk of your chambers is someone I knew when he was literally the third or fourth junior clerk. And I must share with you a story, actually, a quick story if I may. When I was a very young lawyer, about 30 years ago now, I was going to a conference at the chambers at one of its court. They had an annex on Essex Street 
at that time. They may still do. And it was with a very senior tax silk in a case. And I was walked over by Darren Burrows from the main building. I'm across to the annex. And, you know, I still remember that was, uh, that was the first time I met Darren. So, and now he's the senior clerk at your chambers. It was a great meeting him just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, no, no. And, you know, he's, no, he's done really well. And it's wonderful chambers. And, you know, tell us a little bit about sitting as an arbitrator. Is that something you would like to do more of? You've got such an incredibly busy practice anyway. But what's your thoughts about possibly sitting more as an arbitrator? So, so hear this. I, I don't practice what I preach. I don't sit as an arbitrator. I, I generally say no to inquiries that are made. And I, I don't do that because I'm not confident that I'll be able to devote the kind of time and attention that's required. It's difficult to juggle both a busy practice and sitting as arbitrator. Not only in terms of time, but I think also in terms of outlook. So perhaps one day I will. But at this stage, I'm still focusing on the practice side of it. No, it's fully understandable. But one last question before I go into a more, some more lighthearted quickfire round to tail off this wonderful discussion with you. And it's this. One of the things that you know, we've all thought about, a lot of us, and I know that you know, you've been involved in many debates about this, is how do we make international arbitration better? So it's undoubtedly, as you've said, it's a very, very important dispute resolution mechanism. In fact, it's the most important mechanism, we would say, in international business. But is there one particular thing that you think could be done to improve the arbitration process? Well, you know, there are different angles and perspectives. But yes, one, one thing has struck me, especially after the virtual arbitrations that now we've been engaged in, and that is that Virtuality gives you a great advantage. One of the things and the differences between the way arbitration is practiced internationally and the way it's practiced in India is in India, we lawyers and tribunals are very jealous of having an extensive oral closing submission where we bring together all the evidence and we engage with each other's submissions on law and things like that. And of course, as you know, in international arbitration, you often don't have oral closings, and, and that's primarily because both sides have flown across the world to meet in one neutral venue somewhere or the other. And it's impossible for them on the last day of that week or two-week evidentiary hearing to have had the time to really tape it all up and, and present it in a cogent form. So you don't have the oral closing, and you're more or less content with a written closing. I think now, with the option of a virtual hearing, I wouldn't call it a, a lacuna, but I would say that it is satisfying to have an oral closing in many matters. There's a lot that comes through in an oral closing. I don't mean an unlimited, endless oral closing. I mean a time-limited, focused oral closing. So it now gives the option of having a full physical evidentiary hearing, the tribunal breaking up, written closings then being filed, and having a short oral closing maybe a month later where you can bring it all together and that need not be physical. That could be purely virtual. So it's not expensive, but it does. I, I believe it would add value to the process. So I, I would say that's, that's one of the areas where things could change. Thank you. Now, what we're going to do, because we're coming to the end of our time, unfortunately, I mean, I could, as you know, I could speak to you for hours, but uh, we, we unfortunately haven't got that time. 
And I know that you're a very voracious reader on a number of subjects, but have you got, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions, if I may. Okay. In terms of if you were going on an extended business trip and you had to pack three books in your bag to keep you company, which three books would they be? Oh, that's an impossible question. To that's <laughs> no, that's why I asked you. <laughs> I mean, let's put it this way. I often do have something of that decision to make because I do pack two or three books when I travel on holiday. And it's usually one book on ancient history. So that could be Greek, Roman or Persian history, some antiquity. One which does inevitably center around World War II, the 1930s and that period. And the third is a toss-up. It could be anything. But I, I like certain parts of history and there's, there's so much to read. And to the irritation of my wife, I'm one who believes that if you see a good book, you must pick it up. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't matter that you've got, I've got maybe 20 books at home, which I haven't read as yet. Uh, <laughs> we'll stack them all up. You will read them one day. So yeah, I, I, I pick books in, in that way. But I, I don't want to venture to name you my three favorite books because I have 30 favorite books, I would say. No, I know. I, I asked you that question intentionally because I knew it would be impossible for you to pin it down. But uh, I couldn't resist that one. But then, you know, let me ask you this. In terms of the world of music, what sorts of music do you like? And are there any standout you know, singers, bands, composers that you like? So I love Western classical music. I've been brought up with it. That's what my father introduced me to. I do believe it's changed my life. It's been more than just a pleasurable pastime. It's done much more for me. But it's also given me loads of pleasure. I couldn't imagine my life without it. And of course, again, difficult to name favorite composers. There are so many great composers, so many great works. I'm not that much of an opera buff, though I do enjoy opera. I'm more chamber music and symphonic music. But there are so I mean, you know, you know the bees, the Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Bruckner, Schubert, Schumann, Mozart, of course. I mean, Tchaikovsky, the, the Russian composers are also great. Uh, so it's it's wonderful. And one of the problems about the lockdown has been the, the absence of live music. It's so mm. important to hear music live. And, and YouTube or getting onto one of the streaming channels doesn't really replace that. Oh, you know, very, very true, in fact. We very much hope we can all get back to some level of in-person concerts sometime soon. So, and just the last thing, I know that amongst other things, you, you love subjects about travel and food. So... Uh, who told you about food? <laughs> oh, I know, I know. You know, I mean, that's one of our shared passions. You know, in terms of the world of travel, are there a number of places around the world that you're particularly fond of? So, by my absolute... The one closest to my heart is my little gem called Mahabaleshwar, which is a hill station about five hours drive from, from Bombay. That's that's where that photograph of the Narimans and my family was taken at. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's an absolute gem. I love I love the hills more than the, the beach. So I love Himachal Pradesh, Manali is, is lovely. Kashmir is beautiful. Kunur and Uti in the south are gorgeous. Kodaikana. These are gorgeous places in India. And uh, places in the Alps, we love going there. We go back repeatedly to uh, Chamonix, Bechtesgarten, the Sanskamagut area. These are beautiful areas. We love travel. I, I love history and I love travel. And, and coupled with, with the local food, it, it does make for a great experience. It's a great combination. I, I've traveled, you know, every single year of my professional career, barring two, because my 
children were born in that year. I've taken my holidays in May and I haven't worked in much of May. And, and the third time I had to work in May was this year and last year, twice. Mm. But otherwise, I've always taken my holidays and I think that's so important. Wonderful. No, and so true. And, and that's a great way to end this podcast. Thank you very, very much, Darius. It's been an absolute pleasure and a real privilege to speak to you on this podcast. Thank you very, very much for sharing your thoughts with such candor and such humor. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Gautam. Great fun. Great stuff. See you soon. Bye-bye now. See you. Bye. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, readsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.